Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you again as we gather here on this last day of 2023, Lord. So we thank you for all the blessings of this past year. And we pray that this next year, too, would be even greater, greater blessings, but even greater fruit for the glory and praise of your name. And so, Father, we pray that these, even these things may start even now at the preaching of your word here at this very time, Father. We pray that we might go out in power and strength and transformation and renewal of minds, that you would open the hearts of the blind, change hearts of stone, Father, and that you would encourage your saints, Father, that we may be more diligent and fruitful and faithful and loving in all that we do. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is it, the, the last sermon for 2023. I get the great pleasure of that. So, um, And so today then, since it is the end of the year there, I thought, the, as the title says, New Year's Resolutions for the Christian. Uh, it is hard to believe that this is the end of another year, 2023. In a few short hours, the clock will strike midnight and the new year 2024 will begin. And a popular tradition that has evolved at the start of the new year are New Year resolutions. And it is actually an old tradition that evolved thousands of years ago from, you would never guess who it started from, but you are all very familiar with them, the Babylonians. The Babylonians were known to hold a, a big, massive 12-day festival that marked the start of their farming season in which to plant crops. And during that time, they also either crowned a new king or pledged loyalty to their current king. They also made promises then also to their gods to pay all their debts and return any objects that they had borrowed. That might be a good New Year's resolution. <laughs> um, and then it evolved even farther with the Romans when they adjusted their calendar and made January 1st the start of a new year. And so during this time, the Romans then would make sacrifices to their god and made promises to their gods to practice good behavior in the new year. And for Christians... In 1740, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, created the Covenant Renewal Service, which was most commonly held on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. It also became known as Watch Night Services, and they included reading from scriptures and hymn singing, and served as a spiritual alternative to the drunken celebrations normally held to celebrate the coming of the New Year. And this is actually still uh, practiced today, the New Year's prayer and praise services in denominations and churches all around the world. I can tell you from personal experience, and you, my wife will corroborate this, that right now, I, at least on the continent of Africa, there are thousands of churches, even right now, it's about that time, holding overnight prayer and worship and praise services to bring in the New Year. And for us, on this continent here, North America, America especially, it is common to make a New Year's resolution to make some kind of change in your life. So you might wonder then, what does the Bible say about New Year's resolutions? Well, actually, it's silent. It's neither, it says anything negative nor anything positive. But generally speaking, in, in studying and reading about it, there's very few Christians that speak out against New Year's resolutions, mainly because 
generally speaking, most resolutions have some good out attitude or outcome or behavior or change that someone wants to make. Resolutions become so popular that roughly about 50% of the population makes some kind of New Year's resolution. And they're doing some research. Forbes came out with, a, with the latest poll for the top five resolutions for 2024. There's probably really no surprises, but uh, one, the number one was to improve fitness. Second was to improve finances. The third was to improve mental health. And then the last two, lose weight and improve the diet. Pretty common standard resolutions there. Uh, but also, you might be wondering, now, what was the historical success of these resolutions been? How successful were people in accomplishing their New Year's resolutions? Well, as it turns out, the average commitment to a New Year's resolution was just roughly shy of four months. About two out of three people have quit, quit in the first four months only. That it is only one percent that are successful in keeping their resolution for the full 12 months. Just one percent. So let me make an observation then about the, these statistics there. As you see, first they're all focused on self-improvement in physical, earthly, temporary goals. And not to say that that is necessarily wrong. 1 Timothy 4.8 says, For while bodily training is, is of some value, there is some value in these things. These, some of these things are, are very good things. But I think it is the second part of that verse of 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, that should draw our attention. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is spiritual virtues or spiritual disciplines that have an eternal impact. And so some of you, and Christians even, may have New Year's resolutions, even some spiritual type of resolutions. With the most popular among Christians is to read the Bible more, pray more, attend or participate in church more. But even for Christians, they soon fall off their resolutions as well. Why? Well, one, there is no power in a New Year's resolution. There is no intrinsic power that helps one to accomplish their goal or resolution. And the second one, I think even the more important one, is people failing in their goals, is not having the proper motivation and purpose for your New Year's resolution, or really, for anything that you do to desire, to change, or to pursue. A Christian's focus should be eternal in nature and Christ-centered. And so that brings us then to our text today in 1 Peter chapter 4, which will give you the proper motivation, practices, and purpose for a Christian to live, not just for a New Year's resolution, but every day of your life. And so if you have your Bibles there, you could turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, and I'll read beginning here in verse 7, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, 
In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so then today we have, there's five points here out of this passage here, and you can follow along. It's, it's in your bulletin. And we come now to the first point here. Persuasive motivation for resolutions. Persuasive motivation for resolutions. In just the first few words of verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. That Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago to remind the church in his day, and it serves to remind us here today that everything that we know in this world will disappear in view of Christ's second coming. Peter says it is at hand here. In other translators, translations, maybe in your Bible, it says is near or drawing near or approaching. And we are much closer today to Christ's return than Peter was 2,000 years ago. And yet, even at the time of Peter's writing, you can read the understanding was that the early church was living in the last times. They were looking for the return of Christ. Peter wrote earlier in this letter of 1 Peter in chapter 1, verse 20. He was foreknown, that it was Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Paul wrote to the Romans, Romans 13, 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And the Apostle John declared at 1 John 2, 18, Children, it is the last hour. And then Christ himself even declares in Revelation 22, 20, Surely I am coming soon. Everything that we see and we hear will be gone eventually. That there is no eternal hope of the things in this world. They will be destroyed. They will be removed. They will be replaced. One day, one day soon, the government will be gone. The leaders will be gone. The world system will be gone. And so knowing that all these things will be gone, they should lose their importance and priority. It should turn your attention away from this world and onto eternal things. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4.18 People pursue so many things that never last. Money, power, fame, education, pleasure, fun, even family. But it will all end. Peter's reminder that the end is near should make you live in the attitude of the imminent, the soon and certain return of Christ, therefore leading to a total dependence upon God and motivation to live godly lives. That the end of all things represents the fulfillment of God's plan for Christ to return, for his son to return and to rule and to reign on this earth. Acts 3, 20 and 21 that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Do you desire the return of Christ? Do you have a sense of anticipation of Christ's return? Does the imminent return of Christ influence your daily life? 
These words here, these few words, the end of all things is at hand, these words give you a powerful motivator to resolve to obey the Scriptures. Because it is not our privilege or or even necessity to know the date and time of Christ's return. It should be enough for you to know with certainty that he is returning and that you live for him. So think about this. For if, if you knew the exact date and it was far off, you might lose motivation and become apathetic and complacent in your Christian life. And yet, on the other hand, if the date was very close, you might engage in, in frenzied, chaotic, panicked, irrational activity that could provide a mixed and confusing message to a lost world as that day approached. And so then this hope of Christ's imminent but unknown return should make a difference in your lives today. And as Peter will describe to us in the following verses, the Lord is not asking you to go out and do super spectacular works or miracles, to walk on water, be a super Christian or a super apostle. He just wants you to be faithful to practice one's ordinary, regular Christian duties. The Lord's desire is for the Christian to develop and practice ordinary, daily, consistent Christian virtues, to live upright and godly lives, eager to hasten and see the return of the Lord. Martin Luther said when asked what he would do if the end would come today, he replied that he would plant a tree and pay his taxes. Ordinary Christ-exalting behavior. And so here's another question. Are you not only desiring Christ's return, but are you prepared for Christ's return? For his return will be suddenly without warning. Matthew 24, 44. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And when Christ comes, for the Christian, and not necessarily going to come in judgment, but every Christian will have to give an account to our Lord. Not for salvation, but to give an account for what you have done with your life. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Are you a devoted Dedicated disciple who desires to please the Lord in all that you do, knowing that with the end of all things being at hand, that you will stand before your Savior to give an account, should be a powerful motivator for you to be diligent, to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. 2 Peter 3.14 So the end of all things, the sure and imminent return of Christ Jesus is also a day of judgment. As gracious and merciful as the Lord is, if one chooses to reject the offer of the gospel to remain in unbelief, it will result in an eternal judgment of the wrath of God in hell. Paul wrote it this way in Romans, in Romans 2, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. And then in verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Yet because of God's love for the world, he sent his beloved son, Jesus Christ, the first time, 
to satisfy his wrath by dying on a cross to pay the penalty of sin. For it is also written in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And later, Romans 5, verses 8 and 9, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And this is a free gift, a free gift of God through Jesus Christ to receive by repentance, by turning from your sin and turning to God and putting your trust and faith in the truth of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection for your sin. So call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans ten thirteen. And if anyone has not called upon the name of the Lord, listen, I urge you, I plead with you, beg you, as you heard, to call upon the name of the Lord because the end of all things is at hand. And you don't know, no one knows when that day will come. And so, brothers and sisters, then, this also reminds us of Christ's returns as an urgent appeal for you to evangelize, to share this good news with people. You have been entrusted with the good deposit, and the Lord expects you to spread this good news. And now, Peter, after reminding the church in just these few words, the end of all things is at hand, giving us a persuasive motivation, now explains what kind of works is to be practiced for those anticipating the return of Christ. Which brings us to our second point which is a resolution to practice self-control and love. Starting the next half of verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So the, the therefore, which starts this phrase there, refers back to the first part of the verse. The end of all things is at hand. Because of the imminent, the imminent return of Christ, then we are given instructions on the Christian virtues and attitudes we are to cultivate. In response to the end being near, then the Christians should not neglect their common duties. And so the first proper response to the truth of Christ's soon return is to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Self-controlled and sober-minded. Self-controlled, to be in one's right mind. To be under control and not be carried away by an incorrect view of yourself or any undue emotion, or any uncontrolled passions. And on the positive side, it would mean to be alert, sound-minded, mentally disciplined. And to be sober-minded is to be clear-headed, to be sober, as you would imagine, to be free from the influence of intoxicants. Or another way, to curb the controlling influence of excessive emotions or desires, similar to sobering up from the influence of alcohol. Therefore, in response to the imminence of the return of Christ, one sobers up from the influences of the world to be in one's right mind under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And the Greek tense of both verbs, sober-minded, self-controlled, is, is an imperative. In other words, it is a command. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. It is not an option. It is a command. 
And so to be clear then, what Peter is trying to say then is that in response to the truth of Christ's return, you need to be self-controlled and sober-minded, to be under control, not frantic or lazy, be in your right mind according to God's word for a specific purpose, which he tells us next in the next part of the verse, for the sake of your prayers. Now, Peter didn't write to say so you could be successful or happy or free from suffering. Kind of odd, he says, but for the sake of your prayers to do these things, emphasizing the importance of prayer in the life of a Christian. And so I think prayer, outside of salvation, is our greatest privilege and blessing that we have in Christ. Yet, it is so often our most neglected and underutilized spiritual discipline. Because Christ is going to return, then it is of utmost importance that you pray. We have a good example of this in Daniel, chapter 9. Daniel reads the scriptures, and he, and he says, and he knows, and he understands that the 70 years of the exile are coming to an end. And so he knows this. God, God's word has told him. And so what is his first response? He's not to do anything. It's not just to wait and sit back. But it says he turned to the Lord in prayer. And so that should also be our response. When we know that the end of all things is at hand, we need to turn to the Lord in prayer. And when should we pray? Without The Bible commands us, without ceasing, when praying at all times. So at all times we pray, especially in light of the end of all things is at hand. And as Peter wrote this too, for, as he wrote for the sake of your prayer, he uses the general term for prayer. And this encompasses every category of prayer that you could think of. Requests, petitions, supplications, thanksgivings, praises, and repentance. All types of prayer we are to be praying. And it is critical, now we see that it is critical to be self-controlled and sober-minded, to develop and maintain a pure mind, not polluted or distracted with the world, so that you can pray. Right? A mind filled with the world has no desire for spiritual things, especially prayer. And so since the end is near, brothers and sisters, you need to pray. There is a multitude of options that you can pray for. But some of the one, one's important ones, you need to urgently pray for God's name to be famous, to be hallowed, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. As well as awareness of the nearness of the end should move you to urgent prayer on behalf of those who do not presently know, love, and worship Christ. I know that you know people that don't know the Lord. Pray. And with the knowledge that the end is near, Christians are to take prayer seriously. Do you desire or resolve to pray? How often and how long do you pray? And what do you pray about? So I want to challenge you to resolve to be self-controlled and sober-minded and pray more in 2024. But that is not all that Peter is commanding believers to resolve to practice in light of the end being near. He continues on in verse 8 with a plea to love. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. 
the verse begins with, above all, of primary concern, great importance, most importantly, top priority, number one priority, love one another earnestly. And the way the word keep is translated in this verse, where it says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, implies that this too is good news. It's a command for all Christians to love one another. Peter, again, is, this is Peter repeating again what he said earlier in, his let, in the same letter in chapter 1 in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Twice, twice in this book here in these few chapters, he said, love one another earnestly. It's important. And then within this section of our passage here, of 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11, these next kind of section here of our passage, verses 8 and 11, we see is directed specifically towards the church and the actions and attitudes that are be practiced to one another within the church. We know this because of the term one another is used in these verses. So we're able to one another implies being in this local church. And it's emphasized here in verse 8. As I read, it says, keep loving one another. Then in verse 9, show hospitality to one another. And then verse 10, use it, your gift, when we get to that, to serve one another. And so we see the importance then of this relationship within the church of one another. Every one of us then has an obligation or duty to care for one another. The Lord has put us together in his church. The Lord has put us together specifically in this local church, Christ Fellowship Bible Church, for a reason. And that is to love and to care and to serve one another. And Peter is going to explain to us then what are these duties to one another in response to the fact that the end of all things is at hand. And this first instruction is to keep loving one another earnestly. The key word here in this phrase is the adjective that describes the love that you are to practice. Some of your Bible translations might write it as to love deeply, or deep love, or a fervent love, or a sincere love, or even one version had a severe love. So, uh, in other words, this is not a superficial love. This is a deep, heartfelt Willing to love and be loved by others kind of earnest love. This is the kind of love that reveals to another brother or sister that I am struggling with this particular issue or problem. Please help me. And then, on the other hand, too, that brother or sister then, in genuine, sincere kind of love, is to encourage, to edify, correct, pray, and help that person. Genuine Christian love, earnest love, is just not a kind of a warm, fuzzy feeling. It is the determination to place the rights and welfare and others ahead of you. It is practicing one of those two great commandments, love your neighbor as yourself. It also may be described as an intrusive love because you are willing to intrude even to cross personal boundaries to inquire in the personal life of a fellow family member in Christ. And then on the other side, earnest love suggests then that you would be willing to share your personal needs and struggles to allow a brother or sister to practice earnest love. There's a relationship there between one and the other. 
And so the phrase, keep on loving earnestly, also implies an enduring love. Because the word translated deeply or earnestly suggests intensity or earnestness. And the root idea is to be stretched. And so the phrase then is used to recognize that loving earnestly will not be easy, but it can be difficult, it can be challenging, it could be even messy. Yet, it is a love that never ceases. It's not a one-time event, but a continuing event. Once you are a Christian, you are expected to practice earnest love until the end. You are never to cease to love your fellow saints. And the best place to cultivate and practice that is in the local church, as Peter has written. And elsewhere in the Bible, we have similar instructions as well, too. It sounds pretty similar to what Peter has written for us here in 1 Peter 4. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 10.25, the author of Hebrews writes, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Note how the author of Hebrews ties in the need to encourage one another with the day drawing near, Christ's second coming, which is nearly synonymous with what Peter wrote when he talks about the end of all things. Because at the end of all things, Peter says, we are to love earnestly. The author of Hebrews says, because the day is drawing near, we are to encourage one another. Because the day is drawing near. And what is the result of this earnest love? He gives it to us at the end of verse 8. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Commentators differ on how to interpret this expression, love covers a multitude of sins. Some say it refers to God's love covering sins, whereas others say it describes believers who are lovingly overlooking each other's transgressions. And it is true by God's love through Jesus Christ that our sins are covered. That is true. But I believe that in the context of the verse, it has to do with believers lovingly overlooking the transgressions of others against them, since Peter is addressing the church in this passage with one another in this passage of Scripture. I think one Bible commentary I read, I think really captures the essence of this phrase, love covers a multitude of sins. He writes, It does not mean to have no boundaries or let people treat others badly, but it does mean offering more grace to the mix being quicker to forgive, slower to get angry, and slower to take offense. It does not mean to pretend someone is not rude. It means choosing to let some things go, lovingly address others, and forgive quickly. I think this aligns with what is written in Proverbs, Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So brothers and sisters... Resolve to be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, and to practice earnest love. And so that brings us to our third point, which is the resolution to practice hospitality. Resolution to practice hospitality in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. It is interesting that the Greek word for hospitality is used only three times in the Bible. Obviously, it's used here in 1 Peter 4, 
But also, it is used in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, which describes the qualifications for an elder. And so what these qualifications describe is not only just the qualifications for the elder, but it describes really what a mature Christian should strive for or to imitate. And Peter has just written that to practice hospitality. So it's not just an elder qualified person, but all Christians need to develop and practice hospitality. And the Greek word for hospitality is a compound word formed from the word for love and stranger. So hospitality then is a specific form of love, caring for strangers. And for one to practice hospitality, you show kindness and generosity to strangers. An open home demonstrates an open heart. The opportunity to practice hospitality should be embraced rather than ignored. There's an old Italian proverb that goes like this. A guest is like a fish. After three days, he stings. Right? <laughs> that ought not to be our attitude towards hospitality. Now, as Peter wrote this during the first century, 2,000 years ago, hospitality was an important part of the Christian culture. It was an important part of the culture in general. Unlike today, there was no safe and clean hotels a traveler could book ahead of time. There was no holiday inns and days in, etc. The inns that were available were known as dirty, dangerous, and immoral places. So travelers, especially Christian travelers, were dependent upon the hospitality of others. And so to open one's home to strangers, even other Christians would have been a bit burdensome to the host. They would have had to provide room in their home, as well as food and water. It would be burdensome to host a stranger in your home, especially more than once, or for more than a day or two. And this is evidenced by the fact that Peter says at the end of the verse 9, to do it without grumbling. There would be a tendency, as people come into your homes, probably to grumble. Or you could easily host a Christian brother and sister, but yet inwardly grumble about the financial cost, the inconvenience, and having to share your food. Instead, you need to see your home, your food, your money as a gift from God to be used in the joyful privilege to host other brothers and sisters in your home. Have you considered inviting strangers from our church family into your home? People you don't know very well? Imagine what you could learn. Imagine the opportunity to love, to encourage, to edify, and to strengthen one another. Imagine how the church's unity, joy, peace, and fellowship and love would increase. And what a great gospel witness that would be to this dark, isolated world. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. So in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, you need to practice as you walk towards the end of all things and resolve to practice hospitality this year. And then continuing in service to one another, our next point, point number four, is a resolution to practice your gifts. Resolution to practice your gifts, starting in verse 10. As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good, good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, 
in order that in everything God may be glorified. Strike that. I went too far. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So as a disciple of Christ, you've been given at least one spiritual gift. Everyone, everyone who is a Christian that is sitting in this room, you have at least one gift that God has distributed according to his grace, according to the Holy Spirit. Romans 12, 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And we are to use then our gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to you to build up and encourage the body of Christ, the church. And in particular, this church, Christ Fellowship Bible Church. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Peter is, Peter is urging the believers to use it, the gift or gifts that you have, to serve one another. So you're not just to come to the church, sit in the pew, but you're also to exercise your gift to love and to care and to serve others. Your gifts have been enabled you to serve your fellow Christians. And in doing this, they will be blessed. In doing this, you will be blessed. And it is your responsibility to use your gifts. It's nobody else's responsibility but your own. Look at verse 10. As good stewards of God's very grace. So it is the responsibility of each individual believer to use their gift. As he said, to steward, to manage, to direct your gift to serve the body of Christ. Remembering that the end of all things is at hand and you will give an account on how you used or didn't use your gifts. And it's not an impossible task because it's not based on your strength or your power to use your gifts, but is given by God. Look at verse 11. As one who serves by the strength that God supplies. That God is not giving you a gift in which he also does not supply the strength and power to exercise those gifts. The term supplies in verse 11 means, interestingly, to defray the cost of a chorus, to, hence to supply the funds or the things that are necessary in order for a chorus to sing and fulfill their functions. It is also used in 2 Corinthians 9.10 that states that God will supply seed to the sower. He will give the sower the seed that he needs to perform his function. And so God then will furnish or supply what you will need to exercise your gift. It will be God working through you to serve your brothers and sisters. But he can't if you won't practice your gift. And within these gifts here, Peter is also then separated and given us two categories of gifts. Speaking, there's the speaking gifts in verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. And then there is the category of serving in verse 11 also where it says, whoever serves as one who serves. So speaking includes preaching and teaching and evangelism. While serving encompasses an, an assisting and encouraging ministry that benefits others. And one is not more important than another. Each person and each gift is essential to the church. One Bible commentary, I think, really nailed it. And, and listen, there are no insignificant gifts because there are no insignificant Christians. 
There are no insignificant gifts because there are no insignificant Christians. Each of you have a gift, and each gift that you have that has been given is precious in the sight of the Lord. So how are you using, or how could you start using the gifts God has given you to serve others in the church? Resolve to practice your gifts to help one another. And so in all these instructions from Peter regarding developing and practicing these Christian virtues, there is even a greater purpose than serving and loving one another. And we know this by looking at our last and final point. The last part of verse 11 is our persuasive purpose for resolutions. Persuasive purpose for resolutions. It begins with, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter concludes this passage of Scripture with a purpose statement and doxology or praise to God. It begins with, in order that. And so these words function as, here's your end of the year grammar lesson as a conjunction, which serves to connect all these all previous phrases before, in which case here, it's being used to connect the previous verses together. So I could say it this way in this part of verse 11, then I could say it like this. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Love one another earnestly. Show hospitality to one another. Practice for your gifts for one another in order that you may bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. Right? And all that you do, your purpose your goal, your aim, your objective, your intent, your desire should be to bring glory to God. So whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. All your intentions, attitudes, and behavior should be directed to bring glory to God. As Paul wrote, as I read in 1 Corinthians 10 there, even the simple mundane things as eating and drinking can be done in such a manner to bring glory to God. And this phrase then in verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen, prompt you to recall who God is and what God has saved you for. You as a disciple of Christ are not your own, but are instruments in the Redeemer's hand to be used by him for his purposes and his glory. And in this passage that Peter has directed you is to more complex actions than just eating and drinking that will allow you to practice good works unto fellow Christians and to bring glory to God. One Bible commentator says it this way, We glorify God by living a normal, ordinary Christian life, which is the life of a believer who knows the end is near, who keeps his or her head, who prays hard, loves well, welcomes much, and uses their gifts for the church. In one way, the Christian life is not too difficult to understand. I think everyone can understand what's, what's written here. But the problem is actually obeying and practicing what the Scriptures command. But in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing we need to obey the commands of this text, which will bring glory to God. And in this passage of 1 Peter, you have definite instructions on how to bring glory to God with a persuasive motivation, the end is at hand, 
and a persuasive purpose, the glory of God. And so finally then, to conclude uh, this passage here, he ends the verse 11 with a reminder of and praise to who God is. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So scholars discuss among themselves exactly who Peter is referring to when he writes, to him belong glory and dominion forever. Uh, but since Christ is mentioned last then, before the before this start of this sentence here, then the most natural interpretation then is meaning to, to refer to Christ. So you could read this verse then to say, to Christ belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. thank you. And what a privilege it is to know then that in some small way we can bring glory to God, that we can be a blessing to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who already owns everything. It reminds us of the sovereignty of God that everything belongs to Him, including you. And He can do as He pleases and that in His timing the end of all things will come. But until that time, until He returns, you need to live for Him loving and serving your family members in Christ as a vital and tangible way to bring glory to God. And so the start of the new year is just a few hours away. And so now, standing in this God's pulpit as an ambassador for Christ, with God making his appeal through me, I implore some of you to make a New Year's resolution right now before the God of glory, power, and dominion to be reconciled to God Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The end of all things is at hand. Repent of your sins and put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And not just start a new year cleansed of your sins, but to start a new life in Christ that can bring glory to him. And my beloved brothers and sisters, whether you choose to make a New Year's resolution or not, you should choose to resolve to practice these essential Christian virtues. In God's word, you've just heard of a powerful motivation, a persuasive motivation, a persuasive purpose with clear instructions that you can bring glory to God, improve your prayer life, love, serve, and encourage other Christians, strengthen the church, and make your home a salt and light. And for some of you, you may already be doing these things. Well done. Continue the course. And for others... This year, the start of this new year, may be a time then to graduate from not just hearing the word, but to doing the word. And yet, for all of us, let's take this opportunity at the beginning of the new year to resolve to let your light shine before others so that you may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such clear instructions and such wonderful persuasive motivations and purposes that it's not about us but it's about you it's about your son who came and died for our sins out of just an amazing love and so father we pray that these truths then indeed would motivate us and encourage us to help us to be more faithful and fruitful obedient christians father to love and to help and to serve one another here in this church father for the ultimate purpose for all things to bring glory and praise to you. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.